Hi everybody and welcome to the Energy Podcast. I'm Stephen Hall, I'm leading this podcast and this is predominantly for MSc Sustainable City students but we are going to open this to anyone who wants to listen. So for those of you on the Cities course, if you have been out doing another one of the podcasts and you're out of the home, please press pause now and return to your home which is where we're going to be starting the episode and when you do return home or if you've just started this I want you to press pause and get up and go into your bathroom yes that's right your bathroom that's where we're going to start because that's where we start the day so press pause and uh, get yourself to that room okay so we're in the bathroom now for those of you in the UK um, many of you will be in the UK When we get up and we start to use hot water in the morning, we start to use hot water created by two possible methods. We might have an electric shower, in which case we're drawing on the electricity system, or we might have uh, hot water provided by a boiler, in which case we're drawing on the natural gas system, the gas infrastructure. And how we do that matters. It matters to the way that we construct our energy system. It matters to the way which we manage it. And it matters, particularly in electricity, to how it's managed on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. So if we just think of the beginning of an average day, we get up, we get in the shower. Um, we might be using the natural gas system, in which case the natural gas system needs to plan for everybody's boilers switching on and gas needing to be used at a rapid rate from almost nothing uh, from six o'clock in the morning onwards to sort of seven, seven thirty. And then for those of us who are using electric showers, more and more people are using electric showers. Clearly the electricity system needs to be ready for that. It's been a quiet night And then all of a sudden, at kind of half five, six o'clock in the morning, the load on the system, the amount of power we're using, starts to ramp up. And the system needs to be ready for that. So power stations need to turn up or any flexible generation on the system, things that can be turned up and down, need to be ready for that beginning of the morning peak in the system. So that's the beginning of our day. And that's where our bathrooms, yes, they connect to the water system and the sewerage system and all the rest of it. But they're the beginning of the energy day, if you like. And the next part of the energy day is going to be in the kitchen, isn't it? So we're going to pause the episode now and head down to the kitchen. Okay, we're in the kitchen. So we're already up and moving on a podcast walking tour. So we're going to be getting the blood flowing in a minute when we go outside. But for the first sort of downstairs room, here we are. We have started our day. We've come downstairs and we've started to make a cup of tea. And... In the home, one of the biggest appliances, power-wise, is a kettle. If I just look at this one, I can look underneath it. I can see that it's a 2,520 to 3,000 watt kettle. So that's so 3,000 watts because I want my water boiling quickly. I want a cup of tea quickly in the morning. Now, if 24 million UK households or whatever country you're in... Um, However many million households are all boiling water in the morning and all of that water boiling is coming from the electricity system. Not many people are putting kettles on stoves in Europe anymore. But if it's all coming from the electricity system, then clearly the electricity system needs to ramp up again from the shower to the kettles. So people's sanitation habits in the morning and their habits of making cups of tea they they are the things that drive 
the peaks in the electricity system. For may for for deindustrialized countries, uh, like many Western European countries, quite a lot of um North America, and in developed nations where we our main power demand is domestic, it's then domestic habits that drive the system peaks. So the the point in time when the most power has been utilized. And that's when we need that's what we need to build electricity and to a lesser degree gas systems for is these system peaks, the time at which they're being most utilized. And that might only be half an hour or two half an hour periods a day. But it's driven, particularly in Western countries, by domestic demand, whereas in a more industrial economy, the um, system peak will be driven by industrial demand. But that will change from area to area and distribution network, so low voltage distribution network to distribution network. So the system peak on a distribution network in the centre of a city in a commercial district is going to be a different time to the system peak in uh, a residential area. So we're trying to think now about how the way that we use individually the system comes together to make a collective impact on how much infrastructure we need and what types of power do we utilise, what types of energy carriers do we utilise to heat space, to heat water, to illuminate for sanitation, for cooking, etc. And those are the types of things that we need to get to the bottom of if we're going to make human settlements and cities more sustainable because we have to think about who gets access and what are the environmental impacts of that access and how do we change it to be lower impact in terms of local pollutants, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and in terms of social impacts as well. So we can start to think of all those things just by looking at the basic energy infrastructure in the home. Now, in a moment, we're going to go and find the uh, energy infrastructure that's creating all this heat in this house. But for now, I just want you to look around in the dwelling that you are in and think about what it is in that dwelling that provides thermal comfort. So I don't necessarily mean heat. So for those of you studying from a hotter country, it may well be that to maintain a comfortable indoor temperature, what you need is air conditioning. And what runs that air conditioning? Where is the conversion unit in the home? Is the conversion unit that you have in your home the same as everybody else's on the street? In which case it's part of a a wider system, some sort of system norms. And the system norms in the UK are that we have wet heating systems. So we have radiators filled with water and we use natural gas boilers to take that water up to a temperature, which means that that water can run through radiators and heat the home. And uh, I've, it's, a, it's not a very visual medium as in a podcast, but I've got my hand on one of my radiators now and it's on. And the reason why it's on at what, 20 past three in the afternoon is now we are all home working. So because of the coronavirus pandemic, we have profoundly shifted the ways in which we utilise energy at home. So instead of just switching the heating on uh, for, for a normal time, which would be maybe coming on at half past five in the morning so that it's nice and warm when we all wake up and then coming on again at half past four in the evening so we have a, a nice warm evening environment, it's on quite a lot of the day because it's January, it's cold in Yorkshire and 
we want the home to stay warm all day because we're working from home and this is lockdown number three for the UK so we're also homeschooling and that has changed so our individual practices and professional practices have changed the way we use energy so think about what is the piece of infrastructure what is the the conversion technology that is keeping that home at a, a given temperature range which is usually between 17 and 22 degrees for most people so let's go out uh, for me this is going to mean going outside and into the garage so i'm going to pause the episode there um, but for you uh, if it's safe to do so get yourself to wherever that conversion technology is clearly if you have an air conditioning system up on the roof i do not wish you to climb up on the roof just for the purposes of this episode but just call it to mind Here we are in my garage. I bet you never thought you were going to be here today. So why have we come out to the garage? It's because we've got some exciting energy infrastructure in here. Um, Exciting in the way that I'm never quite sure when this boiler is going to work and when it's not going to work. So perhaps you can hear it humming away in the background. Um, It's because it's loud, it's because it's old, because it's tired. And that is a really big issue, not just for me, because replacing a boiler cost between two and a half and three and a half thousand pounds uh, but because if I replace that for two and a half to three thousand pounds then it means that I'm not going to replace it again for another 15 years so if I want to take this house off fossil fuels if I want to if I want my hot water and my uh, heating to be non-fossil fuel dependent then I need to take it off natural gas so there are a few options for me here so the first option is I can just forget about all that climate change stuff and uh, put a new energy efficient boiler in. I will save some natural gas. That's an old boiler. It's very inefficient. um, And I will save some natural gas. And that will save me some money. And over time, that boiler, over quite a long time, that boiler may pay for itself in savings. And it will save some natural gas. So it will have a climate change effect of less natural gas being burned. However, it will still burn natural gas. And we know from the UK's Committee on Climate Change, if everybody makes that decision, we are not going to hit our net zero targets by 2050. The only other decision really that I have in this house for this type of building is a heat pump. And if I'm going to install a heat pump, then that's two and a half to three and a half thousand pounds for replacing a white box on the wall in my garage, which won't take up any more space, which somebody I can just call. It'll probably be done by end of next week, week after, um, is really, really low impact. If I want a heat pump, I've got to start thinking, mm, do I need to change my radiators? Do I need to insulate the home more? Because heat pumps do not provide heat at the kind of 90 degrees that I'm used to. It's more kind of 50, 60 degrees or even lower. Um, so the radiators are not going to run as hot. The building is it energy efficiency is it energy efficient enough to retain heat such that a heat pump is going to do the job probably not so i'm going to have to spend some money on more insulation that cumulatively is going to cost probably somewhere around or above ten thousand pounds by the time i'm finished with the building alterations perhaps radiator alterations i could replace my radiators with electric radiators and electric heaters in the house because I buy my electricity from a green energy supplier. So I go online, I choose an electricity supplier that only buys green electricity, so renewable electricity, 
from the wholesale market. So I could do that with my heating. But that decision that I have to make about my boiler replicated across my town, replicated across cities, replicated across the country in Europe and the world, particularly in temperate climates, really matters. And at the moment, it's very unlikely that I'm going to make the decision to go for a heat pump until there's a better scheme out there to de-risk going for the heat pump and maybe defray some of that capital expense. Like, where am I going to find the extra £7,500? Bearing in mind that's that's two first-class, you know, five-star holidays to a fantastic destination. Or I can get something that's a little bit less good at doing the thing that the gas boiler does because I'm ecologically motivated. So that is a big decision for households and currently it's not been solved. And these are the type of problems that we have to tackle on a sustainable cities course because if Leeds or London or Barcelona or whatever it is has got a net zero commitment or a climate emergency commitment, the way that buildings are heated and cooled will be one of the top priorities in thinking through how that city gets to net zero because those questions are absolutely critical to the carbon footprint of any city. Okay, the next thing that we're going to do is move to the part of the house where the electricity and gas or other meter infrastructure is. So I'm going to invite you to pause the episode here and just move there. I'm not going to have to move very far, I'm just going to have to turn around, but here's a moment to pause and move to where the meter infrastructure is. Okay, so hopefully you are at the electricity or gas meter in the house and once again have been careful in arriving there. I didn't have to go very far, it's in the garage, it's in the same place, so I have an electricity meter here telling me how many kilowatt hours uh, I've used since I've moved in here and this is what's called a dumb meter, so it's just, if you you listen carefully you might be able to hear it tick as it uh, ticks through some analogue figures. And the UK and other European countries and across uh, the US and in quite a lot of developing nations as well, we're rolling out smart meters. Smart meters are digital infrastructure that you can communicate communicate with remotely. You do not need to send a person with a set of eyes to read these analogue numbers. It can be done remotely. And the same is true for the gas meter, which is behind a wall and under a cupboard, and I'm not going to get under there because I think it would interfere with the audio quality of the episode. But the gas and electricity meters are the part, the first bit of infrastructure that's not mine. So my electricity supplier, the person who sends me the bill, owns that meter infrastructure and reads it and is kind of responsible for it. So where when we say behind the meter we mean all of the stuff that can go on in the home. All of the things that I've been speaking about in the beginning of this episode, moving around, thinking about what heats up the water in the bathroom, how much the kettle is utilising, when I need to replace my boiler. These are all behind the meter decisions. So they're really the decisions of the householder or the building owner, whether if you're a, a tenant, it's the decision of the landlord. If you're a homeowner, it's your decision about what energy infrastructure you're going to put in you're going to have smart tellies smart fridges all the rest of it and then there is one space where those two where the decisions of the system and the decisions of the householder uh, meet and i'm going to take you there now so i want you to just just walk outside of the building so go away from the meter infrastructure and i want you to walk outside the building and we're going to 
talk about another space where the decision making between the householder and sort of wider society and energy system governance changes. So just get yourself out of the house and uh, hopefully the weather's not too bad. Okay, we've come outside onto the streets. We've come to the property boundary now. So we looked at the electricity infrastructure in the meter and the gas meter, and that's you know the that's owned by someone else. And then those pipes uh, or cables that are going out into the street, that's where my responsibility ends. As the household, about five foot from my front door is the public pathway, and then those those cables and those pipes are owned by the distribution company so the gas distribution company the electricity distribution company completely different company to the one who retails my energy to me who sells it to me and sends me the bill and we will get into the complexities of the electricity and gas retail markets particularly in the uk uh, but across the world for those markets that are liberalized which means private companies participate in them and we can choose our suppliers so liberalized markets mean that i can choose a renewable energy supplier i can go online i can say i want somebody that only buys electricity from wind turbines and then they're going to retail me electricity match to that it's not actually the exact same electricity um but i can choose a green electricity supplier i can also choose a natural gas supplier who may offset the amount of natural gas that i use by um creating biogas but that's much less uh, much less frequent but there is another point at which my responsibility ends but i would like it to continue a little bit and that is the point at the end of this driveway it's about five feet wide um now a five feet wide driveway is not big enough to put a car so my car's my dirty diesel car is parked on the road and the reason why i'm still driving a diesel car is because the five feet beyond the pathway the public path i can't run a cable across that so i can't plug a cable in and start charging an electric car running it across a public pathway because quite quickly someone would trip over it and i'd get sued and i don't have the rights to run an electric cable across there and that's why i'm still driving an electric car so while the car I drive is a private decision um, and it's my private decision to t go to an electric car and reduce my emissions further I can't do that if I can't charge it and it's no good me charging at the nearest charge point because that's quite far away it's a slow charger it would take two to three hours um, and while more rapid chargers are becoming available in the small town that i live in it's it's unlikely that we'll have rapid charges anytime soon and with the 65 mile commute my decision to go electric doesn't really work so the final piece of the puzzle between my private decision making and energy system decision making is right here on the pathway okay what we're going to do next is i'm going to ask you to go back inside or get yourself on google maps or any other mapping tool and find your nearest electricity generating piece of infrastructure it might be a power station it might be an energy from waste plant it might even be solar panels um, and look for that and see what you can find and i'm going to be able to do that um, because of where i live i'm going to bring two in but just have a look and see if you can find where your nearest one is and then walk to the place where you are going to be able to get a view of it now if it's 10 miles obviously don't walk there uh, but if you think you can get a view of something quite close even if it's maybe a solar panel if you're looking down on google maps find your nearest piece of electricity generating infrastructure see if you can get a view of it and we'll pick up the podcast there okay so 
from where I'm standing, I can see, it's only a little bit further down the street, I can see some solar panels. And I know that the solar panels are PV solar panels, photovoltaic panels, which have been utilised for electricity generation in someone's home. Now, most people are at home most of the time at present, we're still in that UK's third lockdown, but at the same time, those solar panels may generate more than that person can use in that house and then the electricity that's generated by those panels has to interact with the energy market because it will be exported to the grid and what we do with exported power is a key part of how we construct sort of local and urban energy systems so if a local government for example has said right we are going to have a solar power program it might be on public housing might even be on public land then how exported power to the grid that's not used by that building or that installation is treated by the market defines what they're able to do so even though an urban government might make a decision like we we're going to have a big solar panel um drive it might not be able to do so because of decisions beyond its control because most energy markets are not controlled by city governments themselves so in order to do work on sustainable cities for electricity and for gas we have to bring in other decision makers so we have to bring in electricity companies system regulators system operators national grid so it's never just the decision of an urban government what to do with uh, climate change pledges it needs to enroll different actors different uh, decision makers beyond private homeowners and the individual and the individual government I'm going to pause again because I have a little bit more to walk and then I'm going to bring in some more energy generating infrastructure and talk about that on a national scale. Okay, we've got a soundscape. Welcome to the beach. So, why have I come to the coast? Well, I live pretty close, so it was an easy walk for me. And it also allows me to view some fairly large electricity generating infrastructure because from where I am, I can see the westernmost rough offshore wind farm. So this is a large offshore wind farm, uh, gigawatt scale wind farm, which is providing electricity to the UK's national grid. So it's connected to the national grid. It can be the power from this wind farm can essentially be moved around. It can be managed by the national grid as a system operator. Now, the wind turbines that I can see are a good 10 to 12 miles out at sea. They are the uh, header image for this uh, for this episode, and they are they're turning strongly. It's nice and windy out at sea, so we know that the power from those wind turbines is 100% renewable it's 100% clean there's no nasty greenhouse gases associated with them apart from the greenhouse gases associated with getting them out to sea and manufacturing them in the first place which is a very small amount of the power that they produce and we know that the electricity that they are producing is contributing to making the greenhouse gas emissions of this country's electricity system lower than they would have otherwise been so because those wind turbines are turning a, a fossil fuel power station doesn't have to be running so for every rotation a given amount of fossil fuels doesn't need to be burned now the big question is if it's more expensive or if it costs money more money than it would to construct a fossil fuel power station to put those wind turbines in the sea and have them generate electricity who should pay 
And the answer to that in liberalised markets like the UK has always been the electricity bill payer. And we have something called the levy control framework, which makes sure that the electricity bill payers don't pay too much for low carbon electricity. And we will get into the complexities of that as we move through the energy module of the MSC. And we will recognise that quite a lot of these decisions are beyond the ability of individual city governments to deal with. So these large national infrastructure projects like Westernmost Rough, and if I look a little bit further out to sea, um, I can't see it because it's too far away, but I know that about 40 miles uh, in front of me is the construction site for Hornsey 1 offshore wind farm and a little further out than that Hornsey 2 and these are big giant offshore wind farms that are going to be providing um, a large amount of the UK's green electricity into the future and they're being constructed and those wind farms those wind uh, offshore wind uh, installations are no more or less expensive than building a new um, gas-fired power station in the UK so it's they're about breaking even with what you would uh, what you would spend if you wanted to build a new gas-fired station and that is a really big deal because it means that we don't have to um, have too much bill payer subsidy for a transition to renewable energies that's true in the UK but it's not true everywhere so for different technologies in different places it still remains cheaper to build fossil fuel stations or be it um, with the massively decreasing costs of solar, massively decreasing costs of uh, onshore and offshore wind and other renewables, it starts to be a decision to decarbonise electricity is not as expensive a decision as it was 10 years ago. So the landscape has changed. So when we think back to our heating in our homes, if we are to electrify that heating, we can be sure that if we do so, we have relatively cheap large-scale renewables that might be able to accommodate it. How much of that we can build, how many sites are reasonable, how much electricity infrastructure, and I mean literally the size of the wires and substations where we need if we want to electrify transport and heating, is another limiting factor and one that we will discuss. And those that limiting factor does affect uh, urban governments because it depends if you want to, for example, transition the entirety of Manchester over to electric vehicles, then the people of Manchester and that wider grid area would end up paying quite a lot to just accommodate that amount of electrification. So all of these decisions are critical when we think about cities that have made climate emergency pledges they're critical when we think about how to decarbonize heating in homes but the one thing we haven't spoken about very much is what are the social impacts of these transitions can people already afford sufficient energy and the answer to that question is no we have a big fuel poverty problem across the world but particularly in temperate regions or colder climates where access to sufficient indoor heating is absolutely critical to a healthy home and questions of fuel poverty and questions of justice and equality of access to these low carbon systems it's all right for middle class people who can buy solar panels and put them on the roof and actually have the ability to choose whether they want an electric vehicle or not um, but there are plenty of 
people who don't have that ability to choose but also need to be uh, empowered to take part in low carbon transitions so these are just some of the things that we can think of even just by starting very humbly looking at kettles thinking about uh, boilers thinking about what decisions we're making how they affect energy systems and where our individual decision making has to become collective decision making and then when we do make collective decisions who do we have to protect who should pay who should be uh, disadvantaged and advantaged by those collective decisions and those are the type of things that we'll be discussing uh, in future on the course i hope you've enjoyed your walk and i hope you found uh, some electricity generating infrastructure to bring into further discussion